2: Write to check yet, Randy? When you quit, you don't write checks. How do you pay, man? Huh? If you don't write checks, how do you pay these guys? Straight cash, homie. <laughs> <laughs> Randy, were you upset about the
1: fight? No, nah, because it ain't shit. It ain't nothing but ten grand. What's yeah. ten grand to me? <laughs> it ain't next time I might shake my
2: TCL is a proud sponsor of the Score North Studios. TCL, America's fastest-growing TV brand. It's Minnesota Sports Rewind.
0: Welcome in to Minnesota Sports Rewind, where we do deep dives into prominent Minnesota sports events, games, trades, moments, you name it. My name is Phil Mackey, and this episode is all about the 2004 Minnesota Vikings Dante Culpepper's near-MVP season, the Randy Moss mooning game, and all kinds of other things in between. Our crew for this episode, Judd Zolgad, who covered the NFL for the Star Tribune. You covered the Packers for the Star Tribune in 2004. Correct. Trader, So you mm-hmm. saw th- three Vikings-Packers games from the other side of things. Hey, go
1: Pack Go, of course.
0: Uh, people thought that you were a Packer fan with Packer tattoos because of this. And Tom Pellicero, who covered the Vikings for KFAN.com at the time for a couple years. And uh, you could say that it was the 2003 04 Vikings that launched your NFL media career, basically, right? I mean, those are the first two That's teams you fair. covered.
2: It really is. That was kind of the uh, the start for me, uh, and it was a unique experience because those were you know very unique Vikings teams. Uh, you had some star power. You also had a lot of things that were going on in the building, uh, and you know that was at a time where I think that access was a little bit looser and freer certainly in that building than it is in most uh you know NFL buildings now and
0: i want to set the scene for this first just because there's a lot of there's a lot of context that needs to frame up the 2004 vikings i'm going to go through sort of a a short summary of events and then get to our key questions because there's a lot to dive into but interrupt me and stop me as i go here because there's probably a lot of things to opine on here but this was mike tice's third full season as vikings coach This was Dante Culpepper's fifth season as Vikings starting quarterback, and he was actually around 2004 just figuring out how to be a pocket passer and throw for a bunch of yards and cut down. I think he led the uh, the NFL in interceptions two or three times leading into the 2004 season. And uh, this was peak malcontent Randy Moss in 2004 in what wound up being his final season as a Viking, at least in the first stint. And this is also peak cranky and cheap Red McCombs who also was in his last season with the Vikings as the Vikings owner. And the summary of that season, I think it starts at least from 30,000 feet. This was Dante Culpepper's best season as a quarterback, and it turned out to be his last good season and last full season uh, as an NFL starting quarterback. He finished second to Peyton Manning in the MVP voting, 4,717 yards passing, which led the NFL, 39 touchdown passes and only 11 interceptions, and a 110.9 passer rating one of the greatest seasons in Vikings history. He also ran for 406 yards and two touchdowns. If we just stopped at Dante Culpepper, there's a whole episode to be done. And we'll cram a lot of it into this one. But 2004 was also a continuation of what became a Mike Tice staple. Start hot and then fade. In 2003, the Vikings started 6-0 and and missed the playoffs. And in this season, they started 5-1 and and wound up limping into the playoffs at 8-8. and They did beat the Packers in the playoffs at Lambeau Field which is what triggered the infamous Randy Moss mooning incident, which we'll dive into. And that leads us to the other big theme from the 2004 season, which is peak malcontent Randy Moss, who missed a few games with a hamstring injury, left the field with time still on the clock at the end of the Week 17 game at Washington, and he was fined $10,000 for pretending to moon the fans at Lambeau, to which he said later that week, quote, When you're rich, you don't write checks. Straight cash, homie. Ain't nothing but ten grand. What's ten grand to me? ain't bleep,
2: next time I might shake my bleep, end quote. (laughs) That's really the part that gets lost. I've always said, even though the straight cash homie line, and I was one of, I would estimate, ten people who were there for that. So the scene, and you can kind of see it, because I know that the videos are still on on YouTube, but at the old Vikings facility, Winter Park Old, it it was there until like two years ago, but the... Players would park in the parking lot directly behind. It was basically off a loading dock on the backside right by the practice fields. Uh, and at the time, the Vikings Media Center was in a converted racquetball court wow. because Winter Park was so crammed and the way that it had originally been built. They had very little space, but they had two racquetball courts. Why? Because Bud Grant liked racquetball. So he had a couple of courts. It was courts, the 80s when it was built,
1: man. Racquetball was huge.
2: So. They converted one of those into this long hallway that was a. Uh, ended up being the the media center. That's where they had a podium at one end. Guys would walk in. There were reporters working on both sides. But then after practice, uh, you had free reign just to stand in the loading dock as long as you wanted to. Not just like as guys come out the field, like you could wait them out. If a guy came out at four o'clock, if you were really desperate working on a story, you could wait him out till eight, nine o'clock. And so. On that day, and it was cold out, Moss had his, I believe it was a truck, parked, you know, not actually parked, of course, it's Randy, so his car's just like in the middle, you know, double parking in everybody else in the lot. (laughs) And he comes out, and there were a few cameras, I'm standing there, one of the camera guys, I wish I knew his name, but he's the one mainly asking the questions in the video, just like trying to keep him talking, because only a couple people were really on that side of the vehicle, and so the the quote that gets replayed forever is the part about you know straight cash, homie, and then what's ten grand to me? And then the the follow up was, uh, you know, how are you gonna, you know, when have you sent the check? And then Brandy says, rich people don't write checks. What are you gonna do, straight cash, homie? Of course, him joking, but the best line of the entire thing was, "What's ten grand to me? Next time I might shake my." D-. Yep, that's. <laughs> That's the best part. That's the best line in the entire thing. And then from there, slam the door. Randy was always as much as, um, and you called this peak malcontent. Randy Moss. I, I'm not sure that this you know compares even to 2010. Now there was a lot going on. This obviously came to a point where they realized that from a locker room perspective and everything else, they needed to move on from him uh, after that season. But you know Randy was also when you got him as much as the, you know the image of him is that he was combative with the media which he was but he would say stuff and when he wanted to be engaged when he wanted to be illuminating he really really could be you know he was a big influence when he came back in 2010 on Percy Harvin who picked up some of the same things Percy if you got him talking was really good but there's sometimes where just he didn't want anything to do with you now he would never say some of the things that Randy would say to get you away from him um but Randy had lines, man. I mean, that was the year that they, you know, they brought back the afros. That was his thing, where you know, for big games, all of a sudden you take the take the dreads out or the uh, whatever they the are, the raids out, out yeah. the cornrows. Um, you know, and, and they call it the afros, and he, you know, do his post game. I mean, he was he was he was a guy who had he had so much energy around him that it obviously had an impact on people. It just that was the season where it kind of set certain examples where they felt like this is not the energy that's going to allow us to have more success going forward.
1: And this was also the last year of Ticey's plan to make Moss happy because that was the thing I think post Randy ratio. Yeah. Right. But when Tice got the job, the Randy ratio was the big thing of, Oh, he'll be happy now. And then Ticey had this whole elaborate thing starting in what, 2002 or so Tom of he's going to get the ball X amount of percentage of the time. And the, Randy Ratio was born, and so this was sort of like the last year of, okay, Mike really can't control him. And Red was Red was such a weird guy, too, because Red was so damn cheap. And I think Red came here thinking, I'll get stadium built. They'll build me the stadium. Purple pride, purple pride. They'll build me the stadium. I'll get rich off the team, sell it the team. But this was sort of, I think, because when, when I, I got on the beat for the start, to be in 2005, a lot of stuff was still sort of festering that was left over from the end of Red. And so I would say that the best term might be 2004 was sort of the, sort of the height of the, um, um, discontentment of the whole thing. Like the thing had gotten sideways with Tice. Randy was going to be, you know, Randy, that that's the year that we could certainly get into it, that Tice sort of lost Burke, and Burke was his guy. And so everything seemed to go sideways, which, of course, is why in a year like that, you then come back and win a playoff game. Because, of course, you do right. when it seems like everything's off the rails. I
0: also feel like with fans, and, and I don't know if this applied to Randy Moss, but I can just, speaking from sort of an outsider fan perspective, there was still this very cynical, uneasy feeling off of the 98 championship game the 2041 uh, donut game, and the team went into a lull for 2001-2002, offense became not the best in the NFL again, but the offense rejuvenated itself in 2003-04. You thought you found your franchise quarterback for the first time because I mean, the Vikings hadn't had a franchise quarterback since Tommy Kramer in the 1980s. And they had just sort of been piecemealing... And God
1: bless Tommy, but that was very borderline. Right.
0: I mean, he was the starting quarterback for almost a decade, but he wasn't on the level of a Terry Bradshaw or Roger Staubach, the guys of that era, Dan Marino. Um, And so I think think you started to feel like, wow, they've got this thing back on the tracks, and okay, Randy Moss is in his prime, and they found their franchise quarterback in Dante Culpepper, and... And then the wheels come off, and they they want. And, and you thought maybe with that win at Lambeau Field in the playoffs, like maybe this maybe Tice is the guy, maybe Dante is the guy. And
1: all well, right, Randy,
0: and that's. But Dante was also. Now we're getting into '05, but let's start there with key question number one. Let's start with Dante. Two part key question, I guess. Is that the most 2004? Is that the most underrated season? you guys can think of off the top of your heads. In the last, in the, I would say in the Peyton Manning era, of course, so 1998, the last 22 years, is Dante Culpepper 2004 the most underrated quarterback season of that period?
2: Underrated is subjective. I think it is one of the, and I don't even know if it's an outlier season, which is what I'm in, you know, kind of inclined to call it, because 2000, his first year starting, second year in the league, he was really good then too. I think he threw thirty plus touchdown passes. He turned the ball over more, still ran a lot. Mm-hmm. What really you know helped Dante take off, and this is you know kind of a undersold part of what happens with Culpepper going into 05 and where and to Tice and to the organization, and you mentioned Red McCombs is Scott Linehan, when he came in, in two thousand two, immediately turned that offense. O two, Michael Bennett had his by far best rushing season. They were always one of the top teams rushing, and they were doing it out of a lot of three-wide sets, which people weren't you know, doing a ton of in the NFL. I mean, he ran a different type of offense. People were trying to figure out how to adjust to it. So you know, how does that impact Dante? Well, it helps that he had players around him like he did. Now, Michael Bennett was a bit player by 04. His role had shrunk substantially, but you rotate rotating in, Mo Williams in there, Weldy Moore was in there, Ontario Smith. You had a good group of receivers between Moss and Burleson and Kelly Campbell. Again, they got a lot of those guys on the field. They had a lot of speed. Um but they also it was a lot of quick passing. A lot of, you know, Dante his his completion percentage was way up in 04. A lot of those cuz it was, you know, People were running bubble screens. They were doing that in '04. I mean, they were, it was the quick hitting behind the line of scrimmage, the quick hitting passes, and then they would take some of those deep shots. That offense really played to uh, Dante's strengths because it was forcing him to get the ball out, to make decisions quickly. He wasn't turning the ball over. He was being more efficient. And then obviously he was very talented in terms of uh, as a runner. You know, would that, here's one of the great questions is yes, the injury happens in 05, but also Scott Linehan leaves after 04 to become the Dolphins' offensive coordinator. That's a lateral move. Why did he go? Because Red McCombs notoriously had one of the smallest and lowest paid staffs in the league. If I recall correctly, they were only offering Linehan a one year deal to return as offensive coordinator. Because, of course, Tice was, you know, in a year where he was going to have to win to be able to move forward. He didn't want to, Red didn't want to pay anybody to be, uh, you know, to not be coaching. So Linehan gets a three year deal from the Dolphins, and what are you going to do? Yeah. He, he, he takes it and he goes down there with Saban. And then the year after that, it works out for Scott. He goes to the Rams, gets paid a lot of money. Obviously, he didn't have a ton of success there, but, but Linehan leaving and that ripple effect on the offense, on the quarterback, that was a, that was a big deal, and it all comes down to the owner wasn't willing to pay a really good offensive coordinator, had one of the top offenses in the league and had his quarterback
1: playing at a high level to stick around and not make a lateral move. And they, they were so cheap, too, that keep in mind, so Scott leaves in 2005. And, I mean, this is cheap in college football, let alone pro football. Poor Steve Loney is promoted to the OC job.
2: Offensive line
1: coach. While still – co. and, yes – so he's the O line coach. He gets the OC job, which oh man, you got the OC job, and they stick him with the offensive line too. Yeah. Which no, but we're... Scott was coaching the receivers. But I mean, this is how... had two jobs. But that's is... how
2: small the staff was. Now you got assistant receivers coaches. They were
1: they were doubling up, right? Well, and now you've got like linebackers inside, outside linebackers coaches, and you've got cornerbacks coaches and safeties. Coaches. They were <sighs> McCombs was so cheap that all you had to do, I swear to God. Was go to practice at Winter Park and look and that those fields were in disarray. They were like high school fields at the time. And then the berm that went up towards the Winter Park building, the offices was overgrown with weeds and absolute crap. And nobody until the Wilfs bought it came in and cut it down. Nobody did a thing. So, you know, and, and that's the thing. Mike Tice had that job because Mike Tice would do it almost for free. And I remember, I remember uh, in 2005, they had one of the final uh, practices in training camp, but once it had gone back to Eden Prairie, they had sponsors there. And I remember being at this practice, and Mike Tice comes down the stairs from his office. And he has a cooler full of beers because there's gonna be a bunch of sponsors there. The head coach of a team. Yeah. And he's hauling the cooler like a like a football dad would <laughs> across the field. Although he
0: probably wasn't complaining about that. No,
1: right? he wasn't. But I mean this is but, but this is but any success that they had now in retrospect to me becomes all the more remarkable because of the fact that they were basically being run by Red McCombs like a Ma and Pa operation.
2: Yeah. Tice after the 0-4 draft did the same thing carried a cooler of beer to the media room and we drank beers with the head coach of the team <laughs> immediately <about> <laughs> after the draft i mean that's what i mean by like it was it was a different time you know in that building but you did you had that collection of you know really interesting personalities and stars between dante uh between moss and there's you know plenty more to unpack with with randy in that season um you know Nate Burleson's a tv star now that
0: was a thousand yard season in 2004 he was was, damn good that launched him into a contract with Seattle eventually They they
2: chucked it around man like they they had some offense and they ran the ball you know not at that same level that they had the year that I think Bennett was I want to say he was number one in the league or the offense the rushing offense was number one in the league but they were still they were effective they could do multiple things well um but they, they spread people out they had all this speed on the perimeter and Um, You know they had a good enough offensive line. I mean they had they had a lot of things going for them. It just it didn't entirely sync up uh, in terms of wins. Uh, But you saw it in the playoff game against the Packers that when they needed to make some plays, they had the dudes to make some plays.
0: At the time of Dante throwing for four thousand seven hundred yards, now we now it it happens every year. I mean now it's like five thousand has become much less of an eye-popping number. But the only other quarterbacks to have thrown for that many yards or more yards in the season, Dan Marino in 1986, uh, Dan Fouts in 1981, Kurt Warner, 2001, and uh, Dan Marino, 1984. So only a small handful of quarterbacks had ever reached 4,700 yards passing, which is sort of part two to the Dante question. He was pretty bad. Before the injury in two thousand five, without Scott Linehan as the puppeteer
2: and without and without Moss, yeah, you lose your coordinator and you lose your best player. <laughs> yeah,
0: so there were other circumstances in play when it comes to Dante's downfall as a starting quarterback. He had, I believe, six touchdowns to twelve interceptions at the time of the injury in Carolina. But if he hadn't gotten hurt, and he's, he's and he's obviously he's, he he would have had one of the worst years of his career's, uh, career. Regardless, if he hadn't gotten hurt. He was still in his prime. How does his career play out, do you think? Do you think his career was entirely buoyed and lifted by Randy Moss and Scott Linehan, or if he had stayed healthy and had stayed somewhat mobile, would he have had another five, six, seven years in him at somewhat of a high level as one of the top seven or eight quarterbacks in the NFL, which is what he was before
1: 2005? So I will begin this by saying if you trust – Brad Childress's football acumen and think that Brad was a smart football guy. And I know there are people good that don't like personnel. Brad. But, yeah, mm-hmm. Brad knew personnel. I'll start this by saying Brad Childress, when he took the job here, after he left Philadelphia, very much was excited and thought, I get Dante Culpepper. And that was coming off the injury. But, nonetheless, the whole thing with Culpepper basically, he sort of, I think, for a Dante, I think for lack of a better term, sort of flaked out. Like he got hurt. Well, I don't he think he knew what to do. In
2: Florida, the
1: he, strip at a strip mall. At a strip mall. <laughs> but I mean, I think he sort of, I think he Wait, did sort of. Where in a strip mall? Like, a, like outside
2: in the parking that's lot. That's the like great children's quote. I right. can
1: see, we asked, I, we said, because he's like, he's rehabbing at a strip mall. And we're like, Brad, what, what? And Brad said, yeah, I can see a Chinese restaurant. I can see, and he, I think he was right. I think it was like <laughs> basically like a one hour photo. A Chinese restaurant and then some 24 hour. A, a, a guy with
2: a gym, basically. Fitness,
1: yeah. But the point is, if you trust Brad on personnel, and to Tom's point, I think he was pretty good. Brad Childress was chopping at the bit to get Culpepper. So I think that helps to answer the question that if Dante doesn't get hurt, I don't know if he's got seven or eight years left at that point, but there definitely was a dynamic there that a head coach who knew personnel and offense was very excited to get him in a system that he thought would work. I mean, he was only 28 years old when he
0: tore his knee up.
2: How long did he last in Miami?
0: So he spent he spent the next year in Miami, made 4 starts, and then Oakland in 2007, he made 6 starts, and then 2 years in Detroit, 08-09, 10 total starts across those two. So he never made more than 6 starts in a season after the knee injury. Because I mean, I'm trying no, to think of
2: even like a, a comparable to it to somebody who played at that high of a level and then was done that quickly. I mean, it, there's plenty of other positions. I mean, that happens all the time to running backs, for instance. It doesn't happen often to quarterbacks because you just you don't you're not devalued uh, that quickly. But, and it,
0: and it, like so, his mobility gets taken away, and like that's that was a huge part of his game. But we've seen quarterbacks that used to be mobile, and now they're
1: not mobile, also, and their are statues.
2: In that Linehan scheme, it's quick passing. It's behind the line of scrimmage. It's short and that passes.
1: And that year, though, 4 because I, I remember covering the Packers and seeing him play twice in 0-3, and then three times in 0-4, and I was immediately struck by saying, this guy looks completely different. Like He looks comfortable. He's making big-time plays. But I really think, if we're going to go into the path of what happened to Culpepper, I really think you have to go down the path of mentally his knee. I mean, guys, I I was there in in Carolina the game in 05. He didn't just sort of get hurt. It was a bad injury. His knee blew up. Mm -hmm. Like, it was the whole thing. The Teddy thing is, is really sad because he dropped back and it was sort of a mysterious thing. This was not mysterious, but he got hit by, was it Mike Minter was one guy who came in and Chris, somebody I think was the other defensive back. But the point being, you could see it. His knee blew up like that. This was no, oh, it's an ACL, Terran, He'll be back fine. This was, and I remember post game in the locker room, he was crying, and I think it mentally screwed him up. Mm-hmm. I really, and he was never the same. And of course, that's the you reference him going to the Dolphins in '06, Phil, and that's the whole thing where they had the choice between Breeze and Culpepper, and they're like, "Oh, we'll take Dante."
2: They re- rejected Breeze on yeah. his.
1: His, his neck, right? But anyway, shoulder, I shoulder, th- yeah, or yeah. But I think the path that we're going down with Dante is he was never mentally the same because the injury was for a guy who up until then had that mobility was so traumatic.
2: Yeah. He also played a lot on confidence. I mean, you remember like his celebrations, the rolling thing. Get your and, roll on. Yeah. But he would be like the way that he kind of interacted with people. He was very much. I'm not going to say he was a front runner, but he was definitely a guy who fed off the energy. And when he was playing loose and free, he was a lot better. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, you, you take that away, and again, you take away his coach, you take away his best weapon. That's going to have an impact on anyone. Then you throw in a, you know, career-altering type of injury and new scenery. It's a lot. To, it's a lot to deal with.
0: All right. Next key question here. So stick with me on this one. If if Randy Moss. Was able through his whole career to stay focused on just being a great football player, not caught up in ego-related things. Or uh, if if he had focused even in the second part of his career more on staying in the physical shape, maybe that he needed to, would we regard him as the greatest wide receiver of all time? And let me let me spin off that for a second. He's
2: top. He's top three. 15, 10, all-time anyway?
0: Well, I think I would say he's top. I think he's one of the three greatest receivers. I mean, we can look at he's, – he's not In top three yardage-wise. Modern era. Jerry like. Rice. To me, it's Jerry Rice, some combination of Rice, Terrell Owens, Randy Moss. Antonio well, Brown was on that trajectory. And we'll see is, what happens.
1: I think the Moss, to me, conversation is – I don't think in my lifetime a single receiver has come close to changing the game as much as he did in 98.
2: No, completely. So,
1: like, we could get into where where does he fall among, you know, T.O. and Jerry Rice. But I think if the question is – I mean, the Green Bay Packers used their first three picks in 99 on six-foot or taller defensive backs based on one guy. And and I do believe – that the National Football League looked at Moss after that year and said, How do we harness this? But
0: here but here's the crazy thing. So as amazing as he was, his first seven years in the NFL, all with the Vikings, or eight, seven or eight years, whatever it was the first time. He basically wasted he went to Oakland for two years and got stuck with nobody at quarterback, it's Marcus, sopo whatever. <laughs> um so he so he has the injury season with the Vikings in oh four in which he missed three games and was mostly a decoy for well, two games. No, right.
2: Here's the other story with that. So the I believe it was the Tennessee game when he first hurts the hamstring. And it's very apparent he can't play. The Vikings know that. By Friday they know. There's no way. I I can't think of a, a comparable situation anywhere in the league where that guy would be active on game day. But sure enough. Moss has started 100-plus games in a row. He doesn't want to not start a game. He goes out there, plays two snaps in which he barely leaves the line of scrimmage, like in his stance, and then like takes a couple steps, and then that was it. It would never happen, yeah. but that was because Tice, Mo- this streak was so important to Moss. Tice wanted him to be out there, so he capitulated to a guy who he knew if he stopped his streak— was going to blow up. Now, you know, a couple weeks later, Moss actually misses a game, then misses two games, misses three games, and you know it, it didn't matter at that point. But you, you don't see that those the roster spots, which what was it, forty five probably at that time that you could have up yep. on game day. Yep, those are too valuable to have somebody who you know can't play yet. They put them out there yep. for a couple of snaps. That was that was one of the signs of again Moss is running this team not Tice, not Red McCombs, and that was the dynamic that became problematic. And
0: he still had – so he basically only played in 10 or 11 games that year, even even though he's credited with 13. Uh, and he still had 13 touchdowns, still had almost 800 yards receiving. He goes to Oakland the next two years, catches only 60 passes, does get to 1,000 yards in 2005. 06 was a complete lost season for him, 500 yards. Then he goes to New England for his age 30 to 32 seasons – probably one of the one of the greatest seasons of any football player in history when he scores 23 touchdowns um, in the in the undefeated 07 season but here's what i'm getting at his career was basically over at the age of 32 yeah he played for the vikings for a minute uh, then he went to the titans and and bounced around 49ers his career was basically over at 32 jerry rice played 10 more years Beyond that. Well, that's
2: where Rice, the, the longevity and how long, you know, you know, do we need Jerry Rice going to Seattle or Denver or no. whatever? I mean, could have lived without that. But even in his Raiders days, Rice was still a pretty
0: good no, player. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So... You know, it's, it's always tough when you have guys who played a very short period of time at a really high level versus guys who played a long time at maybe a slightly lower level. We were talking about this at the Hall of Fame voting uh, a few weeks ago in Miami, where, it was, you know, Tony Baselli was up for debate. And it's like, Tony Bacelli only played seven seasons and then his career was over. Maybe it was six. But it's like, but it, during those days, he was. You know, one of the best. How do you compare him to somebody who might have played, you know, Steve Hutchinson, who was at the top of his game for eight, nine, ten years? But
0: if you're, I've always said this to Judd too, and it applies to baseball. Johan Santana for seven or eight years was the best starting pitcher in the entire league. And that matters more to me than if you played for, if you're Jamie Moyer and you played for 24 years. The
2: judgment to me has always been, and I don't have a Hall of Fame vote, but the argument that's always made the most sense to me is, Was that player the best at his position for a period of time, and how long was it? If you were the best at your position for three, four, five years – in a you know league with seventeen hundred players, you're probably a hall of famer. Was Randy Moss better at his position
0: for a stretch than Jerry Rice was in his era at the same position?
2: I mean, that's tough because to you could because make the case for Moss. But Randy Moss, I mean, I, I don't I not remember Jerry Rice circa nineteen ninety one well enough to to make that judgment. I mean, he was he was really good, and he had the benefit of being on really good teams. Moss outside of the 16-0 and Patriots team lost to the Giants in the Super Bowl, how many great teams was he
1: yep. really a part of? Moss also completely changed the game. I mean, he was uh, he was a, a, a star that burned bright and, yes, burned out quicker than rice. But, I mean, there's only – guys, just as far as athletes go, there's only a few athletes in our lifetime who will do what Randy Moss did. And 98, 99, those years – they changed the league fundamentally. I mean, I I just don't know, you know, Jordan and basketball. Now basketball's a, a different sport, so you can continue to play and in Jordan's case, you could continue to play too long and it gets really pathetic and sad. But that changed the game. I'm trying to think of guys, how many non-quarterbacks at football have come in and changed the game? And it's not like Yeah,
0: like Lawrence Taylor at linebacker. Yeah,
1: game. and it's not like Moss's first QB was Brady. Randall Cunningham, God bless him, but he was retired. He played in or came back in 97 as a viking you know played okay but he was certainly not great and then from brad johnson to cunningham it basically was like throw that guy the ball and oh by the way he'll catch it every time and so to me it's not like well let's compare moss to this guy or that guy and yes the moss that we saw by 2010 was a guy who had slowed down he was a guy who he was a guy who his physical attributes in his prime were so unbelievably great. You weren't really shocked when you said they're gone now because you never looked at Moss like, oh man, he'll be around for a long time and he's going to reinvent himself. But I mean, in 2010, I always go back to the game in Green Bay and Favre threw him a ball. I think it was in, in the back of the end zone, and he alligator and he alligator arm that sob. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. said that's pathetic and really sad. But for what I got to see you do 10 years ago or, or 12 years back or it was so great, I almost don't care. And I can't say that of a lot of guys. I mean, and Randy Moss could be a complete and injur- a jerk, an utter jerk. And again, he was so damn good at one point. I didn't care that much. What was the smoking
0: gun reason for why they traded him?
2: It was it was everything it, again. It was the dynamic where like if you were in the locker room in those days, and I was you know I was young, I was twenty three years old, being around that team, I, I didn't have a lot of frame of reference. But like in hindsight, it was just very obvious. And 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 you get this dynamic in different locker rooms where you'll have player like just players who are just the loudest guy in the room, right? Yep. They're just they're that guy. You hear them before you see them. And in order to be that guy and make it work in the NFL as you guys try to quietly open those beers, uh, you have to be that talented. And Moss did I cook? Moss was that talented. Uh, you know the but the series of things that happened that year between the hamstring and everything that played out with that, you have the issue in week 17 against the Redskins where Moss leaves. While the Vikings are setting up for an onside kick attempt, where hypothetically maybe Moss should be one of the guys on the field for that, I don't know. Like two seconds left, but still, I mean. But Matt Burke had strongly worded things to say after the game about
1: that. Tice sent Burke after Moss, right, and then tried to back away from it, and that's where he took a
2: long way off the field. Yeah,
1: but I think Tice told Burke, "Go get him," and so Burke did, and then Tice was like, "Well, well, we got a problem there."
2: So then, But then you come to the following week, and you see the other part of Moss where nobody thought. I mean, the Vikings are an 8-8 eight eight team going into Lambeau Field. And this gets us to, are we not to Joe Buck yet? Should I save that part?
0: Uh, we'll, we're, we're getting there. You do this, and then we'll segue into it.
2: So you know, that game, nobody thought the Vikings were going to go in there and win. There was no reason to believe they should win that game. It was cold. They'd kind of been banged up. They hadn't played well. You just thought this is going to be a game where Green Bay just—they're too good. They got far. They got all these playmakers. You know, at that time they had some playmakers on defense too. Like, there's—you don't have the horses. But like, as you watch that game unfold, you—you know—you you saw the good parts of the Vikings. You saw what had made them dangerous uh, through the course of that season. Moss was a big part of it, and that gets us to the touchdown and the. Uh the incident that is, you know, oddly enough, of all the things Randy Moss accomplished in his career, uh all the touchdowns he scored in that, that season with the Patriots where they go undefeated, all the great moments, you know, the Thanksgiving Day game in Dallas. Dow- I mean, every every great game he had, that image is one of the most enduring things with Randy Moss. Yeah.
0: So all right, key question number three here. Is it time to stop hating Joe Buck after 16 years?
1: Anderson. Oh, Home Moss. Uh, Randy Moss is run. in for a touchdown. Oh, Al Harris playing off. Bit up on the route, and Randy Moss without even really being able to run as he shoots the moon to the fans here in Green Bay. That,
2: that is a disgusting act by Randy Moss. And it's unfortunate. That we had that on our air live. That is disgusting by Randy Moss. All right. Minnesota Vikings fans. Are you, are you over it yet? I'll say this. Judd, you were in the same press box as me. Yep. Lambeau Fields is January 05. (laughs) I'm watching it. This occurs in the, it would be the south end zone of Lambeau Fields, which to the right in the press box, which at the time was the open end of the stadium. Now they've built it up. There's a big scoreboard and there's a ton more seats, but at the time it was the open end of the stadium. You got more wind over there. It's so like, you're kind of, you're looking into it. It was getting dark. Cause it was a later start and Moss scores and runs toward the goalpost from my vantage point, And Joe Buck, based on where the broadcast booths are is not far off. He's down the hall. So he's looking at it from a similar standpoint when moss gets in the end zone and you see him drop the ball and simultaneously do the motion with his you know his pants we often call this people call this the mooning incident let it be clear he didn't moon anyone he pretended to moon someone but from my vantage point because he pretends to pull down the pants while he's dropping the football, or you know, basically right after he drops the football, and then is shaking himself, shaking his rear end toward the crowd. I thought in that moment that what he was doing was pretending to take a dump in the back of the end zone <laughs> the, and then wipe himself well, on the goalpost. That's what it looked like in the moment. Yeah, I've never gotten to ask Joe Buck about this. I've always wanted to whether he thought or at least was concerned that that's what they had just aired on TV. Because that, I get the, that's disgusting. If you pretend to poop the football in a game, that's that's generally considered to be over the line. When you find out the actual backstory, the history of Packers fans mooning the visiting team's buses, you get it more of what was happening. But in the moment, I was like, is he just pretending to get dumped
1: in the end zone? I thought the same thing, and it looked like he was specifically using the goalpost pad to clean himself up.
2: That's what I'm saying. It looked and, like but, he
1: was but, wiping himself but, on the goalpost. But to this day, I'm not sure you're wrong about that. To this No, day, I
2: think he's dancing and, and shaking the booty. I has, think has, the he ever, he... has
1: he ever done a
0: follow-up interview about this? Has Randy Moss ever spoken I've publicly? never seen one.
1: I've never I mean,
2: seen... I've talked with Randy since then. I, I don't think I specifically asked him that, but... I mean the explanation he went with was it was the mimicking the mooning of uh the fans. And when you see it from the other camera angles, I think that's what it was. I just well I
1: know what I saw in that moment looked like something different. And the and the interesting thing about the entire Buck call is I think Joe Buck is also taken aback a little bit because that's back in and by the way, nice three man booth back then. Uh Collinsworth, Buck and Aikman That's right, Collinsworth and was the third. Collinsworth guy in the booth. says Randy Moss shoots the moon, and then I think Joe Buck, who who would have been to our left in the press box, but as Tom said, not far down. I think he saw what Randy did and heard Collinsworth say that, and didn't find it to be as funny as Collinsworth did because his Collinsworth to me was amused by it, and so I think he was almost apologetic for we just showed that, my partner, who's twelve years old, thinks it's funny, <laughs> and got caught up in the moment and. I mean, I've always thought that that was one of the most ridiculous things of all time, overreaction wise, from, from the Joe Buck haters. And, I, but I remember, so I, I was doing the sports media column for the Star Tribune back then. So I was in Green Bay. I, st- I stuck around for the wrap up stuff from the Packers that season before I drove back here. And so that week I was doing a bunch of stuff for the television coverage of the Eagles Vikings playoff game, which was the next game. And I remember talking to the Fox people and the Vikings people, and no kidding, Red McCombs seriously moved to have uh, Joe Buck taken off the telecast in I Philadelphia. Remember this. I remember this? And I remember yeah. talking to Joe, and he's just like, "What?" And he's like, "It's just not that big a deal." And you know, if people are offended by what I, you know, I mean, because in Joe's mind, and he's not wrong, he was right, but. Red McCombs and the Vikings of all the stuff that they allowed to fall through the cracks, <laughs> and God knows they allowed a lot of things to P- fall uh, through the cracks, uh, pun intended. intended. This was one thing where they were actually going to work their ass off, pun intended, again to get a guy banned <laughs> from the game.
0: It's amazing, by the way. I, I didn't. I had forgot the Chris Collinsworth. What was the third guy in that booth? That which is booth. another uh, impromptu key question: Is Chris Collinsworth, Troy Aikman, and Joe Buck? Low key, the most underrated football broadcast booth ever. Think about that for a second.
2: There were more three man booths back in the day. I'd well, you had Moose, Goose,
0: hole. and
1: uh, uh, no, that's not. Well, gonna, that's not going to count. Well, mo- well, Goose was always on the field, though. Yeah, and, Go- and Goose was just there to uh, be a, a comedian. <laughs> the best three man booth that I heard, just because it was, because Cosell was just so great and hilarious, was Dandy Don, Cosell, and Frank Gifford back in the day. But as far as like what about uh, Tirico, Kornheiser Cornheiser, and, and then Dennis Miller, Dennis but, Miller. But actually, to your point about low key, Toriko
2: is one of the greatest of all time. I mean, best two man booths in the past twenty mm-hmm. years. Tariko with Gruden. If you know, is I agree. My right only there.
1: my only regret about that booth is I so wish that Gruden never had a desire to get back into coaching because I always want him to rip more people.
2: You would see it. The best part about Gruden in the booth was the final like six minutes of bad games where he'd start getting mad about what he was seeing. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Are you kidding me? <laughs> and just start like you just feel it or like or during the long replay reviews, like I don't know what's taking so long, Mike. Can't believe it. Yeah. I think to
0: what Judges said, I think we're gonna get you know who knows how long this ten year contract and if hopefully for John he plays the whole thing out. But I think after he's made that money and whether he whether he works 6 years of it or all 10 years i think he'll go back to the broadcast booth he's still young enough and he'd he'll still be. With,
2: he'd want to be with with Tariqo.
0: but then we'll get more gloves off John Gruden Actually, after know, this contract's over
1: that would work out very well though the eventual nbc team could be those two again cuz cuz Col- Collinsworth Cause is they were really they were really 16-0. close
2: their families were close That'd they got along really well there were some changes there obviously um, back to the to the buck thing for a second. I think the other thing, and I actually remember in my, again, in my youth here, writing a column for KFAN.com at that time that was based on the premise of what would the Fox uh, reaction have been had that been Brett Favre who had had the same celebration. Yeah. And the answer is almost... Invariably Terry Bradshaw, I think it was the same group, it was Terry Bradshaw and Jimmy Johnson, would have been yucking it up and thought it was the most hilarious thing ever that Brett Favre pretended to moon the crowd. Because it's moss, because he has a reputation, because he's supposed to be the bad guy, it probably was handled differently than if it had been somebody else well, like Favre, yeah. who at that time was the golden child of the NFL. And the race,
1: too. I mean, there's no question about it. Yeah. I mean that that comes in from all oh, Brett, the good old Southern boy. Yeah, Favre would have been. The, I
2: would not. I I would not go that far. I think that there's in everything we do there are latent biases. I agree with you on that point. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's that. I think it's just that you know Favre was hand, Favre had plenty of problems early in his career. Yeah, I mean the painkiller stuff, and I mean there was a there was a lot going on with him. But he was somebody who just like you know all he ever heard was the love of the game, and you know. What you know? Just look at him out there having the you know all the joy that he has from the game. It would have been the same reaction to the you know if you saw that. Mm-hmm. Brett Favre's thirty four years old. Look at him shaking that thing out there. <laughs> you know that's what it would have been. Oh, I don't yeah. think that's a race thing. I think that's just like the way he was viewed versus Moss, who was the same guy who. Ran over the 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 traffic attendant
1: and squirted the referee with the water he bottle. Moved, he moved her with his walked car. Walked okay. off the field the week before against the Redskins. The traffic attendant, and she wasn't even a cop, he just moved her a little bit with his car. They bumped her. And and then, of course, <laughs> what, they got weed in, in his car. And He had the great quote, I think the NFL knows what Randy Moss does with. But Randy Moss, I'll, I, I'll give him credit for this, above and beyond being uh, just a freak athlete. Randy Moss also is one of the smartest players I covered. I mean, Randy Moss's intelligence level of football was super high. It was off the charts. Really, yes. And so I think that's something. I think people thought, oh, my God, he's just so good. He goes out there. And Randy Moss studied. Randy Moss had a lot. I mean, he put a lot of work in, I thought, behind the scenes to that success as well.
0: Uh, Last key question for you guys here in regards to the 2004 Vikings, and it's more of a, a zoom-out question about Mike Tice. So Mike Tice... I could spent, talk about Ticey forever, by the way. Well, this this will give you a good runway here. So Tice had four full years as the Vikings head coach. In his final three years, with all the things you guys have already detailed, uh, of uh, an owner who is skimping on facilities, on staff, on maintaining a number, a headcount on the coaching staff, who knows... To what other areas that level of cheapness trickled down to. Despite all those things, Mike Tice went twenty six and twenty two in his last three years, nine and seven, eight and eight, nine and seven, won a road playoff game at Lambeau Field, and yes, started six and oh and five and one and, and stumbled. I'm not saying flawless, but I think we remember Mike Tice and the fan base remembers Mike Tice as like, oh, he's the jolly, lovable big guy, but eh, kind of a Kind of a bonehead coach is sort of the key question. Last key question. Was Mike Tice a good head coach?
2: I mean, it's a it's a complicated question because I think that another coach in another situation who didn't have some of the other things Tice had to deal with, the Super Bowl ticket thing, and you know, there were some other issues floating around with him, which is really the reason he never got another shot, frankly. Uh, you don't entirely know because of some of those restrictions he had. I mean, as you said, Tice, was, Tice is just one of the most likable people. Like, if you're going to have a beer with somebody in the NFL, you want it to be with Mike Tice. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when I was over at uh, Bunny's a couple of years ago for the NFC Championship game uh, against the Eagles, that was my assignment for the day. And they dug out Tice's old sign from his parking spot. You know, like he was just, he was that guy. He was the guy you want to run into in the bar. Um, Judd's, you know,
0: Judd's gonna get one of those someday at Bunnies, too we're hoping I'm politic at part. least at least a commemorative plaque
2: but he was, he was somebody who I think that, that that had a positive impact on his team at times but the fact that he was also up and down was also shown by his team at times I mean this is a guy who you know one time before practice he ran onto the field in his old uniform full pads That's the jersey cool. everything he ran out there the neck roll he ran onto the field in pads on like a Wednesday. I had to look up when it was. I don't remember if it was 0-4 or not. But he ran out there in the uniform. Nobody else does that, you know. He was, and he would joke about it. That was the other thing. Was like he'd be getting, he'd be getting killed by the media, you know. And he was joking about, oh, am yeah, coach collapse, you know. He'd be joking about it. <laughs> uh, he was, he was very in tune with, you know, what he was. But for somebody who was a, a career tight end, a tight end's an offensive line coach. You know, he he yeah, he he won some games, he put the right piece in place, he got coaches to come in, he got players to buy in. It was just there were some things that kind of got away with got away from him and then, you know, the Linehan thing was huge, the Culpepper injury in the big picture was big, uh, and Red sold the team. I mean, that was the other thing was, you know, the Wilfs were obviously not going to You know, they were going to go their own direction, bring somebody else in. Brad Childers was in many ways the polar opposite. Outside of hairline, Brad was the polar opposite of Mike Tice. Uh, You know, and then, you know, Tice bounced around, and obviously he was in Chicago for a number of years. He was in Oakland. Um, But, yeah, I mean, he, he was not a bad coach. I'll say that I know it's a low bar to clear, but he was certainly not a bad coach. He was a he was a coach whose team reflected his personality.
1: They they had some really good times. They had some some rough times. A little too.
0: undisciplined. I mean, it really. Yeah,
1: you're right. So he got a great opportunity, and he might not have gotten that opportunity because he took took over when Denny got let go. He only kept the job because he'd work for ten dollars. Uh, that being said, if Mike Tyson's career path and career goal. Was to be a coach. That was the worst job he could have gotten because he was a good O line coach. And if he had ascended, if he had ascended ordinarily as a coach, I think he eventually gets an opportunity does w- he, with more stability. It's I think.
2: It's hard with offensive line
1: coaches. I think he does because I think he would have learned more and been a little bit more grounded. I'm not positive, but my point is the Vikings' job in itself probably cost him any opportunity again. Because it was such a mess. And it wasn't just all him. It was red. It was the whole thing. Um, But, yeah, he wasn't a bad coach. You can't answer the question, Phil, in my opinion, of was he a good coach or not, though. Because it was so dysfunctional. And there were so many things that were weird and not And there were some things that a
2: different personality would have approached differently.
1: But, But Tom's right. I mean, they hired Childress based on the fact... That they, they wanted the opposite of Tice. And in fact, it's funny because one of the guys who showed interest in Tice after he got fired here was Ted Thompson in Green Bay eventually. As a head coach? As a head coach because Mike Sherman had been like Childress. And that's football. You're always looking for the polar opposite of (laughs) your last guy. That's true. Now, Mike didn't get the job there and I didn't, I don't think he truly had a chance. Um, but the story that I've been told too was so the Wolves get the team in 2005. And they keep Mike, which was actually pretty smart because I think the Wolf's goal was to spend 2005 just observing things. Like they knew, they're not dumb. They knew what they didn't know, which was a lot at that time. Uh, but supposedly the reason why Mike got fired so abruptly because they played that last game against the Bears in 2005. They won. And they won. But, so, but, and so post game, we're in the locker room. And if I'm not mistaken, Lester Bagley comes through. Handing out a press release saying Mike Tice has been relieved of his duties, yeah. and this also went. But by, by the way, to Nate Tice, Mike's kid, who was a ball boy, who was unaware his father had been fired.
0: That was uh, that. That was one of the first. I was in that locker room as yep. an intern. That was one of the one of the first locker rooms I was ever in. Was the Mike Tice –
1: <laughs>
2: getting fired that's press release. That's circulating a good experience. <laughs> um, and that so, doesn't happen anymore. Another thing that doesn't happen anymore. Nobody hands out a press release that someone's been fired.
1: But at. supposedly the reason why it was so abrupt and, and seemed bush league was because the Vikings had been on the road shortly before that. And they were having their, I think it was Saturday night, but it was the day before game meeting. And one of the Wilfs, I want to say it was Lenny, came in late, and Tice dressed him down in front of everybody. You don't show up late to my meeting. You don't do this. You don't do that. And the Wolves were like, oh, oh, we'll show you. And so they fired him in this completely abrupt. And the one thing about that post-game locker room was, I remember we were talking to players, you know, do you expect Mike to be back? And Because we all thought, oh, he's got, you know, a few more days at least, right? And so they all leave. And I remember going out to the players' parking lot, and I got Bryant McKinney. And Brian Again, because mom. you
2: could just walk around do whatever you wanted to well, do.
1: And I, so I said to Brian, I said, Mike just got fired. Can I get a comment? And Brian takes the press release from him and he reads and he goes, damn, they lied to us. And his mom looked at me and goes, he's not talking to anybody. And then a cop <laughs> accosted me and kicked me out. <laughs> but, like, that's how wild, wild west this whole thing was. <laughs> it was like being in, like, a weird football HBO movie. Yeah.
0: So, man. So the Vikings uh the Vikings are on a run of well, you know, Denny Green got a job with the Cardinals, but Mike Tice never got another job as a head coach. Brad Childress never another, never got another job as a head coach. Yeah. Leslie Frazier never got another job as Still a head coach.
2: Still might I'm surprised Les didn't get a sniff this year. Yeah. And then uh, really? we'll see what happens with I Mike thought he would at minimum get an interview.
1: Oh. I mean, yeah. he was one of the he's probably the one best the person I've ever humans. covered in yes. sports. Yeah. Which is saying a ton for football. Like to have a football guy qualify in in that statement says a ton. But, yeah, they've had a run of, well, you think about Childress got the job. And Brad, as Tom said it, and I think he's 1,000% right, was a good personnel guy. But, man, the people skills were just lacking. It's hard to be all of those things
0: to a room of 53 and peripheral scouts and coaches. I mean, think – Personal def-
2: interpersonal relationships with Brad was really where it, yeah. Prayed. And then relationship with ownership.
1: And less when he,
2: when he cut Randy Moss and didn't tell them, yeah. And that was more or less the end for him.
1: And less got thrown into again a situation that was just really tough.
2: Less went to the playoffs with Christian Ponder as quarterback, yeah.
1: Yep. Unless was also the guy who, what was it, 2011 in uh, Christmas Eve in Washington, celebrated a victory that cost him a, a draft? And Peterson uh, yeah. tore his ACL. And Peterson's <laughs> knee was somewhere on the field, unless, like, hallelujah, yep. what a great day. We're, we're not going to get my Christmas. No, he was. A, he no. still
2: is. Well, relentlessly positive individual you're ever going to meet.
0: Not going to get Andrew Luck, but good win at Washington that season. Uh, boys, thanks for doing this. The 2004 Vikings a lot there to unpack and i think I, we
2: unpacked a lot of it i think i just unpacked my early 20s That's uh <laughs> you, you guys want to do some shots of Ruben? how much right of this
1: <laughs> how how much of the 2004 spin how much the 2004 or season a, were you sober for i'm a tropics guy myself i i mean
2: 2004 I, I couldn't afford to like go out every night you know it was just, like drinking bush light and eating tv dinners and hungry living, man living in a room at my buddy's house in uptown like eh.
0: you can find more episodes of Minnesota Sports Rewind on Apple Spotify or the Score North app and it helps when you give us a 5 star review on Apple and Spotify it helps spread the word about the show thanks for listening